0: You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and this is the third episode in a mini-series reflecting on what, to me, are some of the secretly scariest moments in Jesus' life. We're going to jump right into it this week by reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. This is a short excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a long passage where Jesus discusses how people who follow him should order our inner lives, conduct our relationships with each other, and navigate the world together. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the sanhedrin and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell these are the words of our lord and if they aren't frightening to you i hope that you're not too surprised or too disappointed that they're frightening to me The phrase, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, gets translated a lot of different ways in English Bibles. I just read the way that it's translated in the NASB, but the ESV and the CSB just say insults, whoever insults his brother. Richmond Lattimore's translation, which I mostly love, says, He who says to his brother, fool. The NLT translates that as, if you call someone an idiot, but I think the KJV and the NIV maybe do the best we can hope for with that line. They both warn us to just not say raka. I like that translation because raka is, as far as I understand it, a tough concept to translate. It's probably a Greek presentation of an Aramaic word that means empty one which we don't really understand well enough to have a good go-to analog for in English. But I think that that direct translation, that empty one phrase, it's, it's weird enough and it's evocative enough that it might help us get into a different headspace than a lot of the other translations. And it's a headspace that fits in with a lot of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in general and the rest of this passage in particular. We know that the first thing Jesus tells us in this passage is that if we're angry at someone, it's as good as murdering them. And the last thing he tells us is that if we call someone foolish, we deserve hell. Those parts are pretty clear, according to the scholars. So that's the context for Jesus saying, whoever calls his brother empty one is going to be found guilty before the high court. Given the context that it's parallel to being angry at someone, and it's parallel to dismissing someone as a fool, and that it's part of the bigger Sermon on the Mount. It makes sense to me to let the phrase empty one evoke the idea of not caring, of considering the person you're talking to or talking about to be meaningless, to see a void there instead of someone you have to consider or someone you have to care about. If you're listening to this, you're probably hoping If you're listening to this, you're probably hoping for some kind of sanity or some kind of encouragement or some kind of challenge when it comes to the intersection of Christian faith and American government. And this verse is really really challenging to me because over the last few years, our political debates have shifted. For most of my life, they were Usually arguments about strategy. We all want good things for everybody. Life, liberty, happiness, equality, equity, equal treatment, opportunity, health, wealth, and happiness, safety. Our political divides were ostensibly disagreements about how to get there. But over the last few years, there's been a big shift. It's not new in the grand scheme of human history, but it is new in the past 30-odd years or so. Our partisan divides, the things that Republicans and Democrats argue about on TV or in our government or on our front porches, these things aren't just arguments about how to secure the best life for as many people as possible anymore. A lot of the times, they're arguments about more like core principles. Who should we be looking out for? Who do we need to honor? And who is it okay to be angry at? Who do we need to listen to? And who is it okay to disregard? Who can we shut out of this conversation because they're hopeless fools? Who's worth working for? And who means nothing to us? Who's really here? And who's just empty space? I've been on both sides of this. I mentioned a few months ago that I was in a crowd of people who were standing still with our hands over our heads when a can of tear gas was launched into us unprovoked. And I've had to have conversations with people over the last few months who have kept trying to tell me that it wasn't unprovoked, that I must have done something, that the tear gas must have been in retaliation for something. When I tell them that it was unprovoked, to them, I'm empty. What I'm saying means nothing. And that's not a unique experience. People have had to deal with that all the time. But it was one of the most heated and hurtful examples that I've had to deal with this year. So it's still pretty fresh in my mind. But that doesn't really matter. This isn't about what leaves me feeling sad or disappointed. This is a mini series on what scares me in the Synoptic Gospels. And the thing that scares me about this passage. Isn't that it reminds me of people who have called me a fool or who treat me as empty? The thing that scares me about this verse is that it reminds me of every time I've called someone else a fool, to their face, behind their back, or in my heart. Every time I've sat there, festering in my anger, maybe even enjoying feeling like I'm in the right for once, even if I'm only enjoying it a little. Every time I've been on the verge of writing someone off as having false faith. I get angry, even at my brothers and sisters in the church, maybe especially at my brothers and sisters in the church. I think people are foolish, and I think a lot of people are making such obviously bad arguments or are engaging in conversation in such obviously bad faith, or at least such unexamined faith, that I just shouldn't have to deal with them. I should be allowed to write off Christians who aren't where I am as heretics or idolaters for practicing cultural Christianity. Every single day, I deal with the temptation to assume that people are lying to themselves. To treat them like they've actually rejected Jesus, even if they belong to a church, even if they use his name. To let their place in my heart and in my mind just be empty and to hope that they let their place in the church be empty soon, so that I don't have to figure out how to explain their place in my faith, whether that's explaining it to myself or explaining it to others. And when I face this temptation, I fail at resisting it more often than I succeed. This passage is scary, at least to me, because it outlines in great specificity exactly why I need Jesus exactly why I need a kinsman redeemer, an intercessor, a counselor, a substitute, a rescuer, a teacher, and a merciful judge. It doesn't let me think about my need for a savior as something that only existed in the past before I came to faith. I can't read this and ignore the fact that I'm still broken. And I can't read this without being reminded of how hard it is to live in the U.S. responsibly, and Christianly at the same time. Together, American citizens set the broad direction for domestic policy, and we hire, evaluate, and fire or rehire vast networks of appointed officials who translate that broad direction into specific policies. In most biblical governments, that was what the king did for domestic politics. So we can't shirk that responsibility. God put us here on purpose He put us in a position to have that responsibility on purpose. And I'm pretty sure that if he put us in a time and in a place where we have that responsibility, he wants us to actually handle it, to handle it wisely and to conduct ourselves in ways that embody his commandments. But we're living in a time when every model we have for talking about things that really matter and every model we have for thinking speaking, and acting in the public square, are models of righteous indignation, models of scorched-earth politics, models of us-versus-them, in-groups and out-groups, on the bus or under the tires. Even those of us whose political goals are motivated by compassion for other people are still trained up to pursue those goals without mercy. If someone can't see how right we are, or if someone doesn't know how to listen To the people we listen to or how to have empathy for the people we have empathy for, then that person doesn't deserve to be cared about either. They aren't people we have to honor in any way, shape, or form. They're acceptable outlets for our anger, for our dismissal. It's okay to look in their direction and just see empty space. Even if the things driving us into the public square are good and true and beautiful and honorable, This passage reminds me that it's going to be very hard, very dangerous to the shape of our spirits, and probably very lonely to walk through the public square in ways that actually embody what Jesus says we're supposed to be. That if we are Christian and we live in the U.S., or if we are Christian and we are U.S. citizens living abroad, God has entrusted us with a responsibility that it is very, very easy to get wrong. A responsibility that if we look to the world to learn how to wield it, we're going to destroy our souls. I'm not great at this. And the world isn't going to train us up in this. We have to train up one another. Asking brothers and sisters to teach us how to fill in that empty space in our hearts is not pleasant. It doesn't leave us feeling affirmed. It's not the kind of thing that's very attractive a lot of the time. And it means that a lot of times, We're going to have to give up the affirmation of our political allies, give up being liked or cheered by people we like, by people whose opinion we value, give up having people repost our Facebook statuses, and maybe even start showing up to help out projects that are being spearheaded by people we actively dislike, people we didn't vote for or wouldn't want to have a beer with. We're going to look like bad members of our tribes. And we're going to have to learn to accept the love and company of people outside of our tribe. And we can't do that if we think that those people are fools, if we are constantly nurturing our own anger at them or our own condescension toward them, if we're telling ourselves why we get to dismiss what they have to say because they're not saying it in a way we want to hear, or if we look at them and just see them as empty shells, as empty space, as people who are the empty ones. Let's pray together. Jesus, you know what it's like to be despised. You know what it's like to be rejected. You know what it's like to be lonely, to be a man who loves your place and who loves your people, but lives without being able to gather them to you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. We don't love other people the way you say we should, even other people in the church. We get angry, we call one another fools, we dismiss the pain, the cries, the witness, and the petition of our siblings as nothing more than empty words from empty people. Teach us to hear the cries of the brothers and sisters we are most tempted to reject, who we are least likely to trust, whose genuine faith we have the hardest time understanding. This is painful and even shameful for us sometimes. It means we need eyes to see our own hubris, ears to hear the witness of others, and minds to understand our own sin, the log in our own eye rather than the splinter in our brother's. That doesn't come naturally, and the world won't teach us to do it. We need you to teach us, and we need your body to teach us. When our political opponents come to us, especially our political opponents in the Church, make us quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Because as we harbor anger toward them, we kill them in our heart, kill their place in our lives, leave their seat empty in the council of the righteous or the parade of the redeemed. And what you've done to redeem them, we don't want to denigrate. We want to celebrate it. We want to celebrate it now in advance of how we're really going to celebrate it when you come in your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you all for putting up with this series. This is, in a lot of ways, just me sharing some of what I'm wrestling with as I go back through the Synoptic Gospels this autumn, and I hope that you all can benefit in some way from the things I'm wrestling with myself. If these prayers are helpful to you, or if you want to go back through them slowly or more deliberately, or if you just want to share them with others, we put them all up on our website at christiancivics.org along with extra application steps that you can take to go a little farther with whatever topic we're covering in each episode. We're trying our best to make these ideas, these prayers, these concepts we're talking about when it comes to discipleship in the public square practical. If you have any suggestions on how we can do that better, or if you have topics that you'd love to hear us cover on the podcast, you can reach me at rick at christiancivics.org. And lastly, before we go, we're almost ready to bring on a new staff member, but like a lot of nonprofits, the pandemic has affected our fundraising and our finances. If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helpful to you, and you want to help us get it produced and published more regularly, please consider becoming a monthly donor. With the election a few weeks away, no matter who wins, we're going to have a lot of work ahead of us cultivating a renewed sense of responsibility for the health of our government, of democracy, and learning to live together without trying to lord our authority over one another like the leaders in the world do. These are essential elements for American government to work well, and they are qualities that the church is better equipped to introduce to our public life than most other groups in our country are. We want to help the church give the best it can to the country God has carried us into. And doing that means getting to a point where I'm not our only full-time staff member. So if you want more of this podcast, or if you want more nonpartisan resources on how our faith can make us better stewards of American democracy, head on over to ChristianCivics.org, hit the support button and become a monthly donor at a level that's meaningful to you. And all right, that's more than enough pitching for now. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned for the last couple episodes in this mini-series, they're coming up soon. And thank you for being part of our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.